welcome to The Contrarians, where we are right and you are wrong. I'm Julio. And I'm Alex. Here on the show, we rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. For the first half of each episode, Contrarians Corner, we trash the fresh red tomatoes and praise the rotten green splotches, making our case any way we can. The aptly titled Real Talk serves as the second half of each episode. This is where we discuss our true feelings on the movie we're covering. For more information on our podcast and to browse past episodes, you can head over to our website, wearethecontrarians.com. From there, you can also access our patron and merchandise, because capitalism. If you enjoy our attempts at comedic film discussions, we encourage you to subscribe and leave us a review on whatever podcatcher you use. If you'd like to reach out to us directly, that's what social media is for. You can find us on most platforms as at Contrarian Prime. You can also see what we look like if you go to youtube.com slash at Contrarian Prime, and you can contact us by email at wearethecontrarians at gmail.com. I think that covers it. Then it's time for the podcast. And we are recording for Contrarian's Corner for The Black Dahlia. De Palma, once again, returning to the Contrarians. And we thank you for either returning to or joining us here on the Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex. Sadly, Brian De Palma will not be on the episode, but we have the next best thing. We have his Peruvian non-union equivalent in Julio Oliveira. Julio, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing great. De Palma's not the only one returning. We have... I mean, many, but he is our auteur. I guess so. I, I guess this is his his welcome back party and also his farewell party. In in a literal sense, yes. Yeah, it's like all in one. You could say it's also a farewell party for Josh Hartnett, but also a welcome back party for Josh Hartnett. You beat me to it. That was one of my first comments was going to be that if we had recorded this a year ago, we could have gotten a lot of mileage out of remember Josh Hartnett, but now he's he's back. In zaddy form, looking all <laughs> fine and svelte in uh, Oppenheimer. I wonder if he'll be up on stage when it wins Best Picture. Oh, I hope so. You're <laughs> going to keep cutting back to him. Yes. I, I really, whoever's hosted the Oscars, if they don't make a Remember Josh Hartnett joke or Welcome Back Josh Hartnett joke, <laughs> that's a missed opportunity. For us, we can still get some mileage out of Remember Aaron Eckhart jokes. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Because in some ways it's pitched like he's like the hottie over Josh Hartnett in this, which is <laughs> hilarious. Uh, but much to discuss. Julio, we are in the midst of our annual freezing weather here in Texas. My day was not good. We had a a pipe burst in the attic. Um, oh, God. And the ceiling started to swell. And I was able to get to the cutoff and more haphazardly than I should have with a wrench, I was able to cut off the water supply out in the front of the house right before it looked like the ceiling would burst. Found and isolated the leak, shut it off. We have water back in the house, which is nice. Um, but had to basically uh, lance the ceiling where that was, let it drain out. Uh, that and a part of our wall is going to have to be replaced. So my day was not fun. But then I watched this movie and was reminded that about 75 years ago, around this same time of the year, a young lady by the name of, of Elizabeth Short had a worse day than I did. So if nothing else, Brian De Palma helped me realize that at least I wasn't murdered and drained of my blood and organs. So it could be worse. He brought perspective to your life as, <laughs> he as he did last time. And we did blow out also whatever was happening in our lives at that time. It suddenly was small potatoes next to 
John Travolta having to face his failure in saving uh, the woman from RoboCop. Nancy Allen. Nancy Allen. The woman from RoboCop. That works, too. (laughs) All three RoboCops. But the Black Dahlia also brought literal perspective to my living room because uh, I have a DVD of this, and I forgot it was the full screen version. And I was like, fuck, when it started up. (laughs) Oh, no. Alex, I'm going to have to fill you in on everything you missed out on the edge of the screen. Everything that was cut out, uh, and and honestly, bleed into a bit of real talk, I kind of... I think this movie works better in that ratio, just the way it's presented and whatnot. Not saying that's the way that De Palma intended it, but I, it, um, the last time that happened to me, I had a full screen movie from back in the primitive days of DVD was Terminator. And man, I tried to watch that in full screen once on a widescreen TV. I was like, Nope, not doing it. Uh, so th- this wasn't, uh, as dramatic, but today we're going back to 2006. We're going back to the last time, uh, a major studio specifically, here in the States, gave Brian De Palma money to make a movie. They gave him $50 million to tell the tale of um, Elizabeth Short, as I mentioned by name, and the the story of the Black Dahlia, which is one of the more infamous unsolved murders in uh, American history and is something that has led to other movies. It's uh, obviously led to literature, the novel this is based on, uh, historical fiction, a crime novel that this is based on, uh, titled The Black Dahlia, and also um, L.A. Confidential has some... Not Black Dahlia, but it's the same writer of the... You know, it's uh, James Helmore. Like, he wrote that novel as well. Elroy. And it's, yeah, and it's all, you know, the same <laughs> L.A. noir universe, basically. Well... That's what, what he likes. We need to stop doing this so often because you're already in my head because I was going to move on to L.A. Noir, which is a video game that I've spoke very highly of on our patron previously and gave a, a recounting of my tale. And that revolves around the Black Dahlia murder as well. Uh, it's been a long time since I was up to up to speed on the Black Dahlia case. Um, I remember in college, that was one of those things that I got really into for a while and researching and learning about. So I know that the way this movie plays out is not what happened IRL, but um, interesting nonetheless. Yeah. Now, Alex, I know that uh, listeners that haven't watched the movie, they can't wait to find out who plays Elizabeth Short. Is it Josh Hartnett or Aaron Eckert? Well, it's the, you know. It's Kevin Dunn. <laughs> it was a trick question. Damn it. <laughs> I was going to say also, it's, you know, the world-renowned actress at this point. This was her launching career, Mia Kirshner. Everyone knows Mia Kirshner these days. Dude, I do. She's Spock's mom oh, do on Strange New Worlds, yes. Oh, okay. I don't know what that, <laughs> that is, but go my off. My biggest note. Yeah, no. It's, uh, so she plays the character that Winona Ryder played in the J.J. Abrams reboot. Now she plays it in the TV show. Well, there you go. And she was also on 24, apparently, which I know people like that show. So uh, a death in more ways than one. Elizabeth Short, De Palma's mainstream career. And uh, honestly, until Oppenheimer, this was kind of... This put Josh Hartnett through no fault of his own on the on the cooling rack, on the back burner, on the windowsill. I, I know 30 Days of Night was after this, and he was the lead in that, right? The vampire movie? Yeah. 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 And that was kind of a sleeper hit, if I remember incorrectly. But, I mean, Julio, are you ready to get in the time machine, go back to 1940s? The 1940s, probably the sleekest, coolest looking era in American history. Yes, let's do it. For New Year's, we headed downtown to a dinner club owned by Maury Friedman, a friend of Mickey Cohen's, who sometimes clued Lee into LA drug traffic. 
to be very specific, a post-World War II 1940s. The corruption of the Los Angeles Police Department. But before we can get there, we do need to call out that this movie, I mean, we've already mentioned it more than once, financially tanked, but also critically uh, was uh, maligned, I think would be a way of putting it. Standing currently at 32% on Rotten Tomatoes, and that's out of 192 reviews, and an even lower audience score of 27% based on 50,000 plus ratings. Got review bombed. How did they review bomb uh, movies back then without Twitter? I don't know. Break.com or uh, <laughs> E-Bombs World. <laughs> AOL Messenger. We may not be in Kentucky. We may be on the complete opposite side of the country, but I think we're about to Elizabethtown this bitch. So uh, <laughs> what uh, what were the critics saying about this, Julio? What have they been saying in the uh, 15 years since? God damn, nearly 20. God, it's 2024. I forgot. You know who doesn't forget? De Palma. <laughs> he can't forget. <laughs> He every now and then he looks at the Black Dahlia poster in his office and just shakes his head. It's like, what happened? Everything was there. All the ingredients were there. Um, well, I got four rotten quotes from Rotten Tomatoes website. There's a lot of reviews, more than I expected. You know, on the heels of Ricochet just a couple episodes ago, that had like maybe 20. This has almost 200. So I gotta, I gotta go with like just whatever jumped at me at first. And the first review is from Matt Brunson. Uh, from Film Frenzy, who says, until it derails while heading into its final turn, the Black Dahlia represents Brian De Palma's most assured movie making in at least a decade. So Matt Brunson actually gives him props, but then he said, you know what? It just stopped working at the end. Is that even possible for this movie to lose you? Because I think that the ending is just basically very consistent with what the movie's been doing for the previous, you know, hour and 40 minutes. It certainly goes in numerous directions, and that's something that we're going to get into. But uh, I don't think it loses uh, De Palmanis or his um, his presence as a filmmaker at any point. It is. It it remains a De Palma movie it all does. the way to the final credits. Let's see somebody a little more negative. Mike Massey from Gone with the Twins says De Palma has managed to turn a two-hour movie about a substantial, significant, unusually gruesome real-life mystery into something of a bore. Who could be bored with this movie, Alex? I do know that was a lot of the contemporary reviews. Was that it was convoluted and boring. There's I would boxing. go back in time. I would go back in time and say, just wait. You wait and see what boring <laughs> is in the years that come. <laughs> Enjoy the fact that this is only two hours. <laughs> they pack everything, Alex. There's like boxing matches, shootouts, betrayal, sex, sex with other people, porn, aggressive sex. You know, <laughs> yes. like Hartnett taking Johansson, Swank <laughs> taking Hartnett. <laughs> and then, well, let's not get into what the rich people do because that's even worse. Well, and then uh, Aaron Eckhart, that one scene, he just gets really frustrated that he can't crank Rod while they're all watching porn in the office. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get there next debbie lynn elias from behind the lens says a lover of not only film noir but the grandeur and grotesqueness of early hollywood and los angeles the only thing given to me by the black dahlia is a black hole of disappointment i oh. think it's time to revisit the novel okay debbie are you telling us that it's not as good as the book is that the thing never heard that before yeah you have to learn to separate both of them all three things. You got to separate the movie from the novel. You got to separate the movie from the actual LA scene. 
The movie is the movie. That's it. Yep. And we're going to close with Maddie Lucas from The Dispatch, Lexington, North Carolina, who says, if Ed Wood ever made a film noir picture, this is what it would look like. God, that is a little hyperbolic. I think having seen uh, the Ed Wood biopic uh-huh. <laughs> and having seen just fragments of his other movies, I think that at the very least, that quote is underselling De Palma's visuals. I would agree with that wholeheartedly. That said, if we could just use the time machine also to go back to the Ed Wood times and have him make a noir, I mean, I would finance that for posterity and see what he does. (laughs) Why not? I mean, it'll be better than Brick. Oh, man. Julio's always got to get that in when he can. (laughs) Well, those are the quotes, Alex. Let's go to Contreras Corner. Hey, partner, everything good to go? Yeah. Nash just got a fuck pat on Norton and Coliseum. Premiered in Venice on August 30th of 2006 and then released in the United States on September 15th of 2006. It's a 2006 American neo-noir crime thriller film, which I have on my horror shelf. And I guess my thought or like the psychology behind that was that it's based on a real life gruesome murder. So that's why it's there. But it's certainly, you know, you can make an argument that Blowout is a bit more of a, a spooky movie than this is. Shouldn't you have um, a true crime shelf? I don't have a gun, let alone mini guns that would necessitate an entire <laughs> rack. I don't have enough true crime movies to take up an entire shelf. This is directed by Brian De Palma. We will not mention enough times the last big movie he was given. Written by Josh Friedman, which prior to this, his only other screenwriting credit. Julio, are you aware of uh, what it was? No, but his name sounds familiar. So I probably, I know either that movie or a movie he wrote after. So he had a story by credit on a Keanu Reeves movie in 1996 called Chain Reaction. But his first screenwriting credit was War of the Worlds, the Steven Spielberg movie from the year prior to this. Oh, man. He was writing high. (laughs) And then he had a story by credit on Terminator Dark Fate. And Avatar The Way of Water. Now, as far as what he has on his okay. Wikipedia page. <laughs> Say no more. <laughs> credited to him uh, is in, for this year, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. And then he, they're apparently Julio making another Fantastic Four movie next year that he's writing. So good for you. I'm happy for you. Okay. So uh, that's, maybe that's where I knew him from. He was a writer, producer, and developer also on the Sarah Connor Chronicles, which I never watched, but I know some people that were big fans of it. Okay, so he's uh, he's a sci-fi writer, primarily. War of the Worlds, Terminator, Sarah Connor, Planet of the Apes. Black Dahlia. Black Dahlia. <laughs> <laughs> LAPD detectives Dwight, Bucky, Bleshert, and this is Josh Hartnett, and Lee Blanchard, Aaron Eckhart, are paired as partners after engaging in a boxing match to raise public support for the department. Lee introduces Bucky to his girlfriend, Kay Lake, who is played by Scarlett Johansson, and the trio become inseparable. Bucky is shocked when Kay tells him she isn't sleeping with Lee and later tries to seduce him, but he refuses. He also discovers that Kay has been branded with the initials BD for Bobby DeWitt, the gangster whose arrest and conviction for a bank robbery made Lee's career. So we start off with this, and I always forget that this starts as 
a boxing movie. We get Josh yep. Hartnett, Rocky style, you know, warming up in the back before a fight and presumably praying and reflecting on his entire life leading up until <laughs> this moment. Now, this movie did have a budget of $50 million. I don't think any of that went to the font because I think they just, <laughs> for the opening and closing credits, I think De Palma went with uh, Times New Roman was taken. So he took whatever the next best was. He's like, just give me anything but Comic Sans. <laughs> yes. Whatever else will work. No fucking wingdings. Do <laughs> uh, you know this is coming, Alex? You being the fighting sports expert out of uh-huh. the two of us. Two questions. One, if you're just part of the audience there sitting on this benefit charity match, who are you betting on? Are you betting on Hartnett or, or Eckhart? Okay, so... Looks can be deceiving, so you don't want to go by that always. But Eric Eckhart's too much. The way they're portrayed in this, Eckhart's too much of like he's too cocky and too much of a prima donna. And then also, um, Hartnett's defense is very solid. He's got some good, you know, just classic blocking. And uh, <laughs> I could have used a bit more head movement, but it's pretty obvious when he throws the fight. Uh, I more just kind of longed for the days when. We would do boxing fights between best friends for charity, you know, just, and they not only that, but they would accept it and try to kill each other because, you know, Bucky loses teeth here yep. in the, the opening stanza of the film. That was going to be my follow up question. I was like, how do you how do you rate the, the authenticity of this fight? Because famously, you you go to town whenever I bring up Warrior as any sort of credible source of MMA uh, fighting. Well, so, I do understand De Palma's got to get his licks in. So we got to have the blood and the teeth splattering on like the newspaper at ringside or whatnot. But like if I saw correctly, his whole tooth teeth come out <laughs> like the root and all, which in my years of watching professional fighting, it's uh, that doesn't happen too often. Teeth do go flying, but, you know, you got to get some dentistry work afterwards. It's not just like a clean pull. <laughs> of course, well. times were different. And, you know, dental hygiene wasn't what it was today. So maybe those teeth were just <laughs> rotted and they were going to come out at any point anyway. So so Anchor did him a favor, basically. So to set up the fight, though, we get your boy here. What's his name? The little Weasley guy? Oh. <laughs> Fischler? Twin Peaks? Fischler? Patrick Fischler, yes. He's not just my boy. He's everybody's boy. And, of course, returning to the Contrarians uh, from Under the Silver Lake. And yep. I feel like he's been here... One other time before. He you know who we're talking about. If you know Patrick Fischler, you know, yeah. you're oh, just yeah, picturing him right now. And you're you're going through the same process we are. We're like, where do I know him from? <laughs> but I do know him. He shows up in your dreams. Veronica Mars and also Dinner for Schmucks, I think, would be where we all know him from, of course. Dinner for Schmucks. Uh, but he's also accompanied by uh, Roger Pedactor, the, the actor who plays the police chief. Um, that's not his real name. But <laughs> oh, you fooled me. <laughs> like, okay, I was nodding in agreement. H. Ventura, Roger Pedactor is his name in that movie. I need to see if I have the right guy here. Oh, wait. Okay, so they got two Ace Ventura alums here because the, the coroner is the guy from the second Ace Ventura movie, right? Oh, I've only seen the second Ace Ventura once or twice, so you got the wrong guy for that. Troy Evans is the gentleman's name, and he's yes. Roger Predactor. Roger Predactor didn't commit suicide. He was murdered. <laughs> and not to be outdone by Ace Ventura, we also have a Dumb and Dumber star in this as well. Uh, Mike Starr, who plays, I think his name's Mental in Dumb and Dumber. He's one of the 
guys that the hitman that's trying to kill Jeff Daniels and Jim Carrey. He's also you you may remember him more so Julio as uh, uh, Grotty, the insurance agent on the office that tries to sell Michael insurance. Is that on the the episode where they think uh, they're being targeted by mobsters? Yes, he's the insurance agent. Okay. We took the scenic route to establish the point, but we're dealing with the cast of A-listers here. And, you know, Scarlett Johansson, we haven't even gotten to our femme fatale in this. Well, okay, who's the femme fatale in this movie? Or, or are we allowed to have two? Because it's the Palma, he gets two. Yeah. Okay. I mean, ScarJo has a bit more innocence about her. But she is fatale. She has blood on her hands, no doubt about it. But she at least uh, presents herself as let's just let the cat out of the bag here. Hillary Swank, Academy Award winner, shows up here and she definitely comes with an air of danger about her. Whereas, uh, and you know, you can tell that way because she has dark hair and <laughs> Scarlett Johansson has that platinum bleach blonde hair. I mean, blondes have more fun, which is why. Well, no, actually, that doesn't make sense, because I think when you do the, the tally at the end. I think that Hillary Swank has gone through more men in the movie than uh, Scarlett Johansson. Also, this this loop needs to be closed. Ian McNeese is the name of uh, the guy that's uh, Jim Carrey's guide in Africa, in Ace Ventura, and he's a uh-huh. coroner here in the Black Dahlia. So Jim Carrey just, did he just not take a producer credit, but he was here just <laughs> slipping his friends in? He was a, He was the executive consultant a decade in the making on this. Canvas back. You gonna hide in there another week? Pretty good burn I've never heard before is he calls um Eckhart, that is, calls Hartnett Canvas back the next day or you know, a few <laughs> days after their fight. The whole thing was to determine who gets to like work warrants in the LAPD and they both just still end up working it. Like Aaron Eckhart's like, Hey, you wanna go work warrants? He's like, I lost the fight. He's like, Ah, I called him a favor. <laughs> <laughs> it's Turns such a dick you, move. You it's like, <laughs> yeah, I made you throw this fight for no fucking reason, you dumb shit. <laughs> well, no, not for no reason, because uh, he bets against himself, Harnett, right? And that's also he can relocate his Nazi father <laughs> to <laughs> to a nice retirement home. This is true. Lots of shades of gray in this story. So their first big stakeout ends up in a shootout. And it seems a bit suspicious. Come to find out later, there's reason, you know, there's smoke where that fire is. But while they're on this stakeout, it's January 15th of 1947. This is uh, Elizabeth Short's dismembered body is found and she is dubbed the Black Dahlia by the press. And uh, this is where their directive changes but before we get too deep into that i do need to give credit julio you know this is something i was going to call out that big crane shot Uh that swings around of the woman discovering the body and then comes back around the street to where they're stationed staked out um it used to be better i think that's something that i take away from that shot and it's as good a time as any to mention like practical sets they're using real cars of the time it looks pretty awesome, but Eckert and uh, Eckert and Harnett are in the same car at the same time. 
<laughs> yes. One of them's not in Atlanta while the other one's in fucking <laughs> Calgary. It looks tremendous. And this is as good of a time as any to bring that up. I think that's something to be complimentary about in this movie. Be it wardrobing, cinematography, you know, the sets, the cars, it, it, everything about it. And this big shot they do is fantastic. Um, were you impressed? I, you had seen this once before, correct? A long time ago. And and it uh, it's funny because... Uh, so I watched it when it came out, and then I want to say last year, a couple of years ago, they uh, they had the graphic novel adaptation, not of the movie, but of the book. They had it for free in Comixology, so I downloaded it and I read that. And uh, there are some key differences that we'll get into uh, as, as we go through this episode, but I, I thought that I had the story pretty fresh in my mind, and that wasn't quite the case. There were still plenty of surprises, <laughs> especially uh, regarding Aaron Eckhart's character. But yeah, I mean, I my heart fluttered when when I realized what was happening, which was like, oh, that's right, it's it's a, a real filmmaker is telling this story, and he's just using the tools of the trade, and it's not you don't get the immediate payoff, right? The he he does this crane movement and gives you this overview shot of the area where everything's going to take place, but. I love it that it starts or kind of like at the beginning, right? You see the woman that I guess has discovered the body and she's asking for mm-hmm. help. And then the camera goes away from her. And we just don't come back to this until much, much later, because then we are going towards what's going to be the immediate next scene, which is uh, the place that Eckhart and Harnett are staking out completely separate from the Black Dahlia murder. This has nothing to do with that. It's just, this is what's happening in the lives of these characters right now. And then when when that is resolved, then we come back to what we saw at the beginning, which was, uh, you know, the woman freaking out about that that dead body. That's great. That's that's filmmaking. That's cinema. <laughs> and you're right. It, it feels real in a way that many movies don't anymore because it feels plausible, right? Like it, it's not, you watch it happen and you're like, yeah, this is something that could be done practically. Whereas most movies today would go so flashy with the camera movements that you're like, there's no way they did this. Practically it has to be computer generated. And that's why it, it kind of takes you out of the story. Once the crime scene becomes evident, Hartnett and Eckhart wander over there and mental from Dumb and Dumbers, like the fuck you doing here? And... <laughs> Uh, but then it starts explaining to the law enforcement officials on site. Don't leak any of the details about this. Uh, it's basically Zodiac, you know, uh, some of the Dahmer tips and whatnot of the police intentionally withhold really grisly details to weed out confessions that are fake and shit, you know. And so he, he just basically tells them, don't tell anybody about this shit. And then a crow comes down and Aaron Eckhart just backhands it, which made me mad. It's like, hey, man, what did that thing do to you? Uh, you know who else is withholding details? Who's that? De Palma. Because De Palma withholds the the gruesome visuals of what happened to Elizabeth Short until the very end. At the very end, you catch a glimpse of the head. Right, but for the most part, it's just this shot from the from the corpse point of view, and you have all the cops just looking down at the camera, and you keep waiting because I guess we're conditioned to expect the the money shot, right? Where, where does he get like the really gruesome stuff? And he actually shows a lot of restraint. I want to say that that maybe early days, De Palma would have gone to. To, I mean, this movie gets pretty gruesome as it goes on, but for the big reveal of Black Dahlia here at this moment, it, it's it's pretty restrained, I thought. Uh, like I said, you, you see a little bit of it, and then you see more, but it never gets in there. And again, that's probably why I wouldn't classify it as horror, Alex. 
It's a little classier than your standard horror movie. I mean, it is quite something and quite uh, a decision as a filmmaker to call your movie The Black Dahlia and not focus too much on The Black Dahlia. De Palma, I am once again in awe of your ability as a filmmaker. Do you think this was this was after Pearl Harbor, right? Yes, that was a three. Right. So do you think that Josh Hartnett came up with that and, and suggested to De Palma? It's like, you know, I was in Pearl Harbor, but Pearl Harbor was like 20 minutes of that movie. <laughs> Enough horseshit. Listen, this is the felony summary report for the week ending November 14th, 1946. Julio, we got derailed there talking about the, the viscera of it all, but uh, great score. That, that was one of the biggest things that reminded me of L.A. Noir was just kind of the classic style mystery Hollywood score. I mean, this movie is nothing if not a love letter to the noir films of the you day. Said but it. I did. <laughs> the dialogue and everything, you know, at one point without a hint of, you know, comedic wording or irony, Josh Hartnett says, Don't jerk me off. And, you know, there, there's. <laughs> Say he tells one guy he's like adios back to your hotel or something. It's it's tremendous. It doesn't cross the line though. It doesn't cross the line into uh, didn't have anybody go see. Yeah, Aaron Eckhart's <laughs> not chomping on a cigar like man. <laughs> well, okay. Well, well, we are like just salivating and gushing out love for for the production overall. I, I have to go back to something I said at the very beginning, which is that obviously I didn't live in the 40s, but based on, on what media, what fiction has fed me in specifically this movie, I think that the 40s must have been the, the coolest looking time in the United States. I love that everybody wears a hat. Josh Harnett doesn't even take the hat off when he's having sex. There's a shot of him after he's having sex. Or he takes a, it off and then puts it back on after climax. I couldn't yes, decide I think that, in my that's mind. probably more likely. Yes. But but it, he because he knows he looks cool. Everybody. And I, what, I was thinking about it. I was watching this. I was like, man, could I get away with just if, if I just start wearing a hat? Like, would people really allow that? <laughs> Can I just show up to the office with a hat and people will be like, hey, he looks cool? Or, or would they be like, what a weirdo? This is not the 40s anymore. Like, have we lost it? Did we just miss the window of we're wearing hats and dressing like these guys is is socially acceptable? Because that's a shame if that's the case. I think sadly we have because like you, if you dress that way now, yeah, you're labeled like an asshole or you know <laughs> possibly a hipster. <laughs> Every time I've tried to wear a fedora in my life, I get made fun of. I mean, rightfully so, but you know, maybe we need to do that. We need to do that at the same time, Alex. Strength in numbers. We. We should be for Halloween 2024, uh, <laughs> Bletchert and Blanchard. We should be. Who's going to be who? You're taller, so I guess you get to be Hartnett. I'll take it. <laughs> I'll slick my hair back. I'll take it, man. Uh, speaking of Hartnett, he's very frustrated with uh, his partner as Nash is the name of a uh, on the lamb murderer. They're, they're supposed to be hunting down, you know, taking into custody and. The obsession with this Black Dahlia case, it really takes off for, at first, Blanchard, uh, Aaron Eckhart, but eventually Hartnett kind of gets bitten by it because, you know, we're really desensitized to shit, but this was a big fucking deal at the time. Uh, Bucky learns that Elizabeth was an aspiring actress who appeared in pornographic film and hung out with lesbians. He goes to a lesbian nightclub and meets Madeline Linscott, who looks very much like Elizabeth. Madeline, this is uh, Hilary Swank contrarian's legend who comes, million dollar baby 
who comes from a prominent family, tells Bucky that she was very close with Elizabeth, but asks him to keep her name out of the papers in exchange for sexual favors. She introduces him to her wealthy parents almost immediately. Okay, that's not really what happens. <laughs> that's what I thought was going to happen because uh, they're in the car and she's like, what do I have to do to keep my name yeah. off the papers? And so you think, I guess, because we are... They have uh, sex because they start dating. Right, 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 right. You think that she's propositioning, hey, can I blow you or something? And and instead it's like, all right, pick me up tomorrow at eight. <laughs> Take me to the movies. During all this, we get the autopsy scene that you mentioned with, what's the actor's name? Ian McNeese. Ian McNeese, who's the coroner here of uh, Elizabeth Short and explains that her body was cut in half, the smile cut into her face. She resembled a mannequin. Uh, the story, the legend goes that this is in real life, mind you, that numerous people drove by, uh, walked by, and because of the state the body was in, because most of the organs and all of the blood was removed from uh, the corpse, the skin was tied around the skeleton and it resembled a mannequin. So there were people that thought it was just a broken mannequin that was left on the side of the road. This leads to a very morbidly funny joke where Mike Starr asks, can you smoke in here? And the corner goes, she won't mind. <laughs> I did laugh out loud at that. That's how you can tell that guy used to hang out with Jim Carrey. There you go. And while investigating this case further, Eckhart, we get like um a Goodfellas moment here with De Niro, Pesci, and Ray Liotta, where Eckhart and Hartnett share the screen with Kevin Dunn for one scene. My note says the good Kevin Dunn is here. Well, he's the, the nastiest Kevin Dunn I've seen. Well, Julio, even his character here is still more noble and credible than the Kevin Dunn <laughs> that was recently forced out of WWE and in disgrace. <laughs> I did pop huge for him looking at both of them and say, I know who you are. Neither of you would have landed a punch on Jim Jeffries uh, or something to that effect. Jim Jeffries, famously a uh, boxer from the late uh, 1800s, early 1900s, that was like the white hope. And he was brought out of retirement to fight Jack Johnson, uh, who was a black man that just at the turn of the fucking 1900s that dude was there knocking out white dudes everywhere wearing fur coats <laughs> driving sports cars dating white women publicly and so as you can imagine um whiteies were very mad about this and uh, eventually talked jim jeffries into coming out of retirement to fight jack johnson in what was billed as the fight of the century this was held in um it was on independence day i remember that uh, it might have been in Nevada at that point because I know Reno was already kind of like a prominent city uh, for big events. And, and of course, if you know the story, Jack Johnson beat the shit out of him and the fallout of it very sadly led to uh, race riots across the country. Um, so what we know of Kevin Dunn's character here is that He's uh, one, an asshole, and two, clearly racist. So <laughs> this is the nastiest Kevin Dunn we've ever seen. It's true. It's true. Playing against type. He's, he's really a sweetheart in most movies. But it's important to call out here, at this point in the movie, Josh Hartnett does not want to be on this case. He wants to do what they're assigned to do. And uh, we learn here that uh, around this point that Aaron Eckhart's on all kinds of pills. And I mean, eventually it's 
it's kind of obvious, but all the blows he's taken to the head are catching up with him. He's he's <laughs> he's fraying out, man. He lives with Scarlett Johansson and apparently is not fulfilling her her needs. And I love the scene where Scarlett Johansson puts her cards on the table. It's just her and Hardenet, and she tells him, "What are we gonna do about us?" And Hardenet tries to deflect to say, "Like, oh, you, me, and and Lee." And she's like, "No, no, no, no. you and me." She's like, we are we are grown people. We're adults. And we've spent about 40 minutes of this movie in this wishy-washy love triangle. Let's settle it. What's going on? Are we are we gonna do this? And and Harnett can't do it. He he cares more about his friend than Scarlett Johansson. And I was like, man, you could today you would do this in an HBO 10 episode miniseries. It would be just the the Black Dahlia by way of of this love triangle. And, and I think that maybe one of the reasons this movie failed is because audiences, what you were saying, right? Like I think that audiences saw Black Dahlia on the poster and they went in expecting it to be only about Black Dahlia and they were not expecting complex relationships between these uh, police officers and the woman that loves them both. And, you know, it has nothing to do with the murder, but it's really interesting. So I could have gotten actually more of that uh, and I would have minded it. Always she'd be there. Never between us, always in the middle. Thoughts on Hillary Swank here. From a primal, you know, dude level, she's very attractive, but also for, you know, what we're analyzing here and what we're observing, uh, this is one of the thicker accents and, you know, bigger characters I can recall seeing her play. She's definitely stepping out and going for it. You got to give her credit for that. She, out of all of them, she's the one that feels the most like she, uh, speaking of stepping out, like it's like she stepped out of like a 40s movie. What does she do? Is she doing Lauren Bacall? Is that what she's going for? Uh, I guess, yeah. I mean, she's putting her own spin on it. And, and my my first instinct was this doesn't work. And then I realized, wait, no, it does work because she is, she has affectations. She's, she's this rich, spoiled woman. And... She talks like that because she feels like she's better than everybody else that she's talking to. When you get to the end, actually, when when she's when everything is out, her voice changes. Like when you know they're having the big face off at at the end, and you can tell that oh well, she kind of like drops her pretense and she she sounds a little more like like a regular person. It's a layered performance. It's weird because Hillary Swank, you know, we make like the Palma jokes and we make Josh Hartnett jokes, we make Aaron Ecker jokes. But out of everybody in this movie, I think Hillary Swank is the one cast member that I could I couldn't tell you what's going on in their career like today. And I know that she's still like working, but it's just, you know, when you look at the timeline uh, of, of her career, it's like I can pinpoint like the big moments. Right. Uh, Boys Don't Cry, Million Dollar Baby, The Next Karate Kid, I guess. <laughs> but then there's a lot of stuff that she's doing in between that's like I have no idea I don't know like I I caught her in a she sort of the end credit here too does she I guess it's well deserved <laughs> like, you you have to catch her and like she's in between projects like hey do you want to do this go nuts this was her follow up to Million Dollar Baby so she obviously and I watched the behind the scenes uh, featurette on the DVD and her talking about you know reading the book and learning more about uh, the character and uh, Madeline that is. And she, she took it pretty seriously, but you're right. She's one of those actors that has like the big, you know, benchmarks, the pillars as it were, but then everything else that fills in between, it's like, Oh really? Like she was in new year's Eve. 
that fucking Gary Marshall movie. Uh, yeah, she. I, I caught her in a Soderbergh movie uh, not too long ago, and it was just and she was there doing a weird accent too, and I kind of get the feeling that she just wants to have fun. She was in that movie Freedom Freedom Riders, was it? Uh huh. She just does what she wants, I guess. And but then every now and then she'll show up and be like, "Oh, by the way, I'm an Oscar winner." We do get an earthquake happening in the movie. Just to remind us we're out in California. Uh, oh, okay. Here we go. We talked about when Madeline introduces Bucky to her family. What What's going on here, Julio? We get a POV shot for the one and only time in this movie where we meet Madeline's family. What What is the significance of this? Uh, I mean, it's up to interpretation. It is, in a way, we are meeting the, the killers. We just don't know it at the time. And much like Hardnett doesn't know it. So is it the Palma just giving us a chance uh, of, of figuring it out on our own, right? We are literally absorbing information the way that Hardnett is absorbing information. And it's, you know, can we put the pieces together faster than he did? And, and the answer is not in my case. <laughs> I, can, I was like, oh, what a bunch of weirdos. But I didn't think that this, this family was behind the Black Dahlia murder. Did you, could you tell? Uh, definitely not. No. <laughs> like I went, hey, it's uh, Aunt Petunia from Harry Potter, but that that was as far as I went with my my impressions. So I mentioned this earlier in the investigation. Aaron Eckhart can't handle watching the uh, pornography that Elizabeth was a part of. Storms out, gets reprimanded for it, and uh, that's putting it lightly. Yes, Patrick Fischler goes off, calls him an embarrassment, and demands a, a letter of apology. There's a second uh, Hardnet POV shot, which is the next morning. As Patrick Fischler <laughs> just leans oh yeah, over. where he gets in his face, and you know <laughs> it's the like uh, degradation porn. You know, if you're really into like the humiliation <laughs> stuff, that's just Patrick Fischler <laughs> telling you you're worthless. Get out of my sight, <laughs> Biker. Get out of my sight. Try and be a police officer. Speaking of porn, though, I, I think that second only to that that crane shot that we we're talking about earlier, uh, the shot of the police department watching that black and white—I uh, was going to say snuff film—it's not it's stag film. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's pretty amazing. It reminded me of uh, when they watched the tape in Jade, uh, except that now this <laughs> is there's like more people, and there is something just extra weird about black and white porn. Even worse, black and white amateur porn. It's it's perverse. Yeah, it's kind of like gross and and the way it's shot too. I mean, I know it's because it's relevant to the plot, but there's this weird moment when the camera like zooms in or get, goes for a close up of the hand. And I'm mm-hmm. like, what? What is this? <laughs> That's not the money shot. It, it's really really weird. It and obviously on top of that, you can tell that they're not entirely willing participants. So the whole thing is gross and. It keeps cutting back and forth between the what they're seeing on screen and then this kind of like slow tracking shot across the faces of Patrick Fischler, basically every every cop that we've named so far, and then some others. And they're all kind of trying to be professional, except for Aaron Eckert, who keeps just he's ready to break his desk in half. Uh it's it's amazing. It's epic. It 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 tells you everything you need to know about the police force in the 1940s in LA, I guess. Shortly before this, we need to call out the uh, suspect that they should have been following the whole time. Nash um, is killed, but not before he takes two more innocent lives. And this is where Josh Hartnett just beats the shit out of Aaron Eckhart in the uh, 
the men's room at the LAPD station. It's a rematch. So. Well, here he shows him. Yeah, I did take a dive because <laughs> I can fuck you up anytime I want to. We find out that uh, Bucky is not progressive at all as he freaks out when Hillary Swank <laughs> tells him that she had uh, experimented with a woman previously, specifically Elizabeth. It's such a fake out because when she first tells him, he gets this big smile. And I was like, oh, yeah, relatable. And then I realized, oh, no, he's getting the big smile because he thinks she's joking. Yeah. And then when he, when he realizes that she's being serious, he he throws a fit. I mean, that I, that my move would have been, hell yeah, like, high right? five. <laughs> the smile grows even bigger. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Let me introduce you to this friend, Kay. <laughs> even Aaron Eckhart would stop looking at pictures of the murder. Like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so back to this Bobby DeWitt character. Uh, we He's this ominous presence throughout the whole thing. And we find out that he's getting released from jail. And this is... Uh, I believe my boy and Aaron Eckhart in this movie, uh, Blanchard, has a touch of OCD. I can relate to that. Uh, he's obsessed with this. And we know there's something bad that happened with Scarlett Johansson with K because of his initials were burned into his back. Uh, Lee's obsession leads him to become erratic and abusive towards K after Lee and Bucky have a nasty argument about a previous case. Bucky goes to Lee and Kay's to apologize, only to learn from Kay that Lee was responding to a tip about Bobby DeWitt, played by Rob Zombie's uncle, Richard Brake. Uh, I'm just assuming that because he gets cast in everything that Zombie makes these days. <laughs> Richard Brake's awesome and similarly to kind of an incidental character that was earlier in this movie that we'll talk about in uh, Real Talk. Uh the first shot, you're not quite sure. So it's like, is that Richard Brake? And then it came closer. I was like, oh, fuck yeah, it's Richard Brake. Bucky <laughs> finds DeWitt. Like, Wait, no, where did he go? <laughs> Bucky finds DeWitt in the atrium of a building before he is gunned down by Lee, then sees a man, Garrett Lee, before a second figure steps out and slits Lee's throat. Uh, the second figure, by the way, very slender, very feminine in. Uh, build I, I wonder if that'll come back at all <laughs> lee and the man holding the rope fall over the railing to their death several floors below i remembered this part julio i did not remember we get a close-up of aaron eckhart's head hitting the fountain on the way down it's so it's like a gallagher show man the watermelon explodes i did not remember this I remember that Aaron Eckhart didn't make it to the end of the movie. Like I knew that he disappeared at some point. And having read the graphic novel, as I said, like the, the I guess in the book, uh, you never see him die. In the book, he he disappears, and then uh, the Harnet character, part of his investigation, starts to figure out where Lee went, and he went to Mexico, and eventually he finds uh, what happened to him in Mexico. But it's it's very different from what happens in this movie. And I, in my head, I was like, oh well, at some point. Uh, Eckhart is going to disappear and, you know, something similar. So I thought that he was going to survive this assassination attempt. So this this worked exactly the way the Palma wanted it to work. <laughs> I thought that it was, oh, there's no way they're going to kill Aaron Eckhart. And they did with extreme prejudice. It was, a, it was a bummer. I couldn't believe it. I mean, we're like, what, an hour 20 into the movie, I think? You don't expect them to knock off one of the main characters, you know, this early in the movie. And on top of all that, Josh Hartnett gets knocked out because there's other law enforcement officials there. And when he comes to, they're just throwing Richard Brake's body in an incinerator <laughs> and shortly followed by Aaron Eckhart, Two-Face, getting thrown into the old fire pit. Okay, those are not 
law enforcement officials because <laughs> that's illegal what they're doing. <laughs> it was a different time, Julio. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, did you take note of what his last words to Aaron Eckhart were? Fire and ice. Fire and ice. Yeah. yeah. He's a big George R. R. Martin fan. <laughs> the guy, the other guys there is like, what? You had to be there, man. My note says, why is this called the Black Dahlia? <laughs> the grief of losing Lee propels Bucky and Kay into having sex, aggressive sex on grief a kitchen table. sex. Yeah. The next morning, Bucky finds money hidden in Lee and Kay's bathroom. Kay reveals that she had been DeWitt's girlfriend and that he abused her. Lee rescued Kay, stole DeWitt's money, and put DeWitt behind bars. Bucky realizes Lee was there to kill DeWitt and leaves furious. And this is back to the beginning of the movie, the shootout, where it seems as though Aaron Eckhart was, uh, you know, just being a police officer and uh, protecting his partner and killing someone who pulled a gun on him. When in reality, he was just taking out all the witnesses of this uh, DeWitt situation that could have uh, incriminated him. Uh, the Palma doesn't cheat, by the way. I don't know if you did what I did, which was go back to that scene. There's no trickery. I mean, really, the way that it's shot, you can tell that Aaron Eckert is pulling his gun out before he pushes Josh Hartnett down. Like, you can tell that he's yeah. the one that shoots yeah. first. So it's not that, oh, well, they shoot it one way at the beginning and then the flashback gives you a different... Uh, no, when you watch this movie for the first time, it is kind of like, wait a minute, that seemed kind of funky. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not sure that's... All there is to it. So exactly. De Palma, he's shown it to you. He, he just, plays fair. He didn't want to see it. He does play fair. Uh, so he goes over to Madeline's where he notices a painting of a leering clown. Kay follows him and she is appalled to see Madeline's striking resemblance to the Dahlia. <laughs> so that looks like that girl that was killed. How sick are you? He's like, well, come on in. I'll show you. <laughs> he does do that thing of like, he kind of is like, oh, okay, wait. And then he looks back. He's like, well. <laughs> he goes from having grief sex with Carl Johansson to having angry, dejected sex with Hillary Swank. He's living the life. We, but we get both Swank ass and Hartnett ass. Swank could possibly be using a body double. Hartnett, you know, he kind of gets up. We see booty. And then he kind of turns back and looks at us <laughs> with like a wink. You know, he, he knows what we're there for. So my I have in my notes here exposition, more exposition, more exposition. So hang tight with me, Julio, here while I, I make it to the last four paragraphs of the uh, Wikipedia <laughs> plot summation. This is the curse of the noir, by the way. It's you say this every time because it, uh, it's true. Bucky starts putting the pieces together and remembers props in another movie matched the set in Elizabeth's pornographic film. The end credits thanked Emmett Linscott, Madeline's father, and Bucky digs deeper into the story. Madeline told him about using old film sets to build cheap fire trap housing in an empty house below the Hollywood land sign built by Emmett. Bucky recognizes a set that was used in Elizabeth's film. He finds evidence in a barn on the property that Elizabeth was killed and butchered there, as well as a drawing of a man with a Glasgow smile. The drawing matches the painting in Madeline's home and the gruesome smile carved into Elizabeth's face. Bucky confronts Madeline and her father in their home, and Madeline's mother, Ramona, reveals that she killed Elizabeth. She confesses that Madeline was not fathered by Emmett, but rather by his best friend, Georgie. She says that Georgie became infatuated while watching Elizabeth film the pornography. Ramona was disturbed by the idea of George having sex with someone who looked so much like his own daughter and lured Elizabeth to the house and killed her. 
That's right, officer. George and me. Not that Emmett cared about that. Before Bucky can decide what to do, Ramona shoots herself. I'm sure you love that squib. Uh, I forgot about that, so I was like, oh, fuck. Uh, but yeah, this is... <laughs> well, you know what they say, Alex. It's always a butler, and if there's no butler, then it's a drunk mom. Why not, you know? There was something wrong with her. We could tell. And truthfully, this scene just exists for Josh Hartnett to do target practice. He's just <laughs> shooting all this shit in the house. And I love the idea of him just, they're so materialistic that he just shoots like the chandelier. And they're like, all right, we'll speak. We'll tell you everything <laughs> you need to know. This is, like I said, it's a curse of the noir. At some point, it could happen halfway through the movie. It might happen all the way to the end, like like it does here. But at some point, there is an attempt to make sense of everything that that's been happening and because noir i guess by by it's, it's just part of its dna of the genre to just be convoluted to have to explain how convoluted the plot is that that can sometimes lead to a downfall so you need you need certain things to get you through it uh assuming that you're going to try to explain it because i think that the best noirs go like fuck it we're not explaining anything see under the silver lake uh, but in this yeah. case, if they're going to explain it, then you need either you, you need at least somebody that can deliver the exposition. Uh, and whether you have that or not, it will also help a lot if you have somebody that can shoot that exposition uh, in an interesting way, which is what the Palma does here. Right. I think that the, you know, the lady that's playing the the drunk mom, she's kind of uh, handicapped by the fact that she she's playing drunk. So the, what she's saying is, is kind of not that interesting to follow because it's like listening to a drunk person talk. Uh, but the Palma goes to town on those flashbacks. And this is probably the most graphic thing when you see them killing Elizabeth Short and you see them, they put her head on that vice so they can cut her, her mouth open. It's very graphic. It's brutal. Uh, again, I don't think it crosses the line. I think that there's a, uh, you mentioned Rob Zombie just a minute ago, and I think that he would have shot those scenes very differently. <laughs> he probably would have pushed the envelope uh, too much. But I think that the Palma gets to a point where, you know, it's like if you didn't depict this as horrifyingly as he does, then you would be doing the story of the service. So he does that. And you, the added bonus is that it gets you through that exposition because in the end, even if I don't quite connect on first watch all the dots, the way that they're connected, it doesn't matter because what I'm taking away is the visuals, the, the, the images that, that he gave us. And, uh, and those those are powerful. So when it's all over, I completely understand why Josh Hartnett is just like, the, oh, and then, you know, we, we close with him looking at newspapers saying that, oh, well, they kind of swept everything under the rug. And then my note says, but wait, there's more. There's more. <laughs> yeah. All right, so it goes, for mine, it goes, Josh pieces it together, the dramatic conclusion, exposition, all caps, more exposition, bigger caps, the end. <laughs> <laughs> a few days later, remembering something Lee said during the investigation, Bucky visits Madeline's sister, Martha, with some questions. He learns that Lee knew about Madeline and Elizabeth and blackmailed Madeline's father to keep it a secret. Bucky finds Madeline at a seedy motel, and she admits to being the one who slit Lee's throat. Although she insists that Bucky wants to have sex with her rather than kill her, he tells her she is wrong and shoots her dead. He double indemnities her. He does. Bucky then goes to Kay's house, and she invites him in and closes the door. And it literally says the end in, like, 
if that font was on a product <laughs> you bought at a grocery store, you would not buy it because you would fear that it's too cheap. You would think it's a bootleg? <laughs> yes, you would think like, oh god, like imagine like uh, a bag of shrimp that had that font on it that said shrimp. You'd be like, absolutely <laughs> fucking not. <laughs> That's all right. I mean, all the money went to the cast and it was money well spent. It, it's true. And the sets and whatnot. But yeah, he has that, that final vision, Alex. What do you make of that? He's about to go in for the kiss with, with ScarJo. And then oh, it's going to haunt him forever. That's what yeah. it is. He hears the crow. He sees the body. He's a broken man that gets to spend the rest of his life with Scarlett Johansson. So I don't feel too bad for him. <laughs> This is one of those things like he got to have sex with Hillary Swank a bunch of times and then, you know, got to eat some good food and then he ends up with Scarlett Johansson. I'm sorry if I don't have uh, sympathy for Josh Hartnett here. If, if Bucky doesn't uh, tug at my heartstrings. Uh, I think that uh, it's funny because we didn't plan it, but this is in a way the perfect follow up to the Neon Demon episode because this movie is also about how much L.A. sucks. Except that this is telling you it's always sucked. Back in the 40s, it was just the same. <laughs> Elizabeth Short arrived in L.A. wanting to be a star, much like uh, Elle Fanning arrived in L.A. wanting to be a model. And uh, yeah, the industry destroyed them. Those those auditions, oh, now we're getting to real talk. As I say, those audition tapes are heartbreaking. That's a discussion for the next segment. It is, but to put a, a bow on Contrarian's Corner, that comes to us in just incredible fashion from obviously one of the more celebrated filmmakers of his day. And this movie, we, we keep joking, but it literally, it ended De Palma's career as a mainstream filmmaker and set Josh Hartnett back a ways. Again, that guy's not eating fucking spam every day like I am, but you know, it's, he's doing all right. Do you think, I, do you think that the reason that De Palma got, you know, that this was it, like they, they just put a stop to him was because they blamed him for derailing Josh Harnett's career. <laughs> I mean, the, I, I would. That, that would be <laughs> my biggest bone to pick with him. But what I'm trying to say is these scenes with Elizabeth, the look of this movie, as we move into real talk, I think a good place to leave off here is that De Palma made a memorable movie with this. And while all the pieces of it may not work, there are some very good pieces to it. Yes, <laughs> I agree. I think that I, I wonder how the Palma would feel about that statement. That's a real question. My DVD case does say from the director of Scarface. And I was like, God damn, dude, they were still <laughs> trumping into that shit. Twenty five years later, he directed Mission Impossible. Carlito's way. Blowout was before Scarface uh, and Dress to Kill was, too. Those are the ones I go to. Um, I mean, Snake Eyes. I'd be like, I'm there. <laughs> All right. Let's get to some real talk here. Let's do it. <laughs> 